Good morning, church. And morning. Welcome to those online joining us. It is lovely to be gathered together in God's house this morning. I uh, have thoroughly enjoyed um, His presence in worship, and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing uh, a message that He's put on my heart for you. And we are going through a series in Mark, and the challenge of our times is that in this pandemic, it's easy to allow the pandemic to come to the forefront because we are immersed in its challenges. And we feel as a preaching team very strongly that God is calling us to look to Him. And so this is why we're going through this gospel of Mark. It's a brilliant book to get our eyes set on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We want him to be at the forefront of our minds. We want him to be the first that we think about. We want to know him intimately, and we want to enjoy the riches of a loving and vibrant relationship with him. And the challenge for us, as we've spoken about before, in knowing Jesus intimately is that he is the majestic king of heaven. And it can be difficult to relate to him. And this is where Mark is so good. Because he makes Jesus so relatable to us. He's relatable to us in his humanness. So that we may not only know him more intimately, but we can follow him as humans in a more practical way. So far in the series, we've spoken about how the gospel is a person, Jesus. We've spoken about how um, the gospel... Uh, or Jesus has these qualities, these characteristics where he is authoritative and compassionate and how beautifully these two components dovetail together in the way that he relates to us. And this morning, as we carry on in chapter 2, we're going to learn about his purpose for coming. The title of my sermon this morning is Jesus' Purpose for Coming. And I want you to turn to Mark chapter 2. And we will read together from verse 1 to 17. It won't be up on the screen, so I really hope that you uh, have something to refer to. Um, and I'm going to begin. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And my first point this morning comes out of uh, the first story where Jesus heals the paralytic. And um, the, the point is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And so far we've seen him exercise amazing authority. In one sentence, he calls men and they leave families, homes, livelihood. He speaks again and demons obey. He speaks a third time and sickness is healed. But now he gets down to business. He exercises authority in this chapter in a far greater way than he has done so far. And it, we are going to see the real purpose for why he came. He's going to reveal to us his ultimate purpose and mission. He doesn't come just to lead a ragtag bunch of disciples. Primarily he does do that, but that's not why he came. He doesn't come to give the demons a preview of their grand finale. He certainly doesn't come to lay the foundation for tele-evangelist healing ministries. The reason why Jesus came is to deal with sin. And in this story, he does so emphatically. He's back in Capernaum. If you remember from last week's sermon, uh, he's had a, a wonderful day of ministry in Capernaum. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law and the whole town's come and brought all who are sick he's uh, 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 set free the demonic uh, the person who, uh, with demonic influence in the, the temple and uh, he uh, has also healed the leper this all happened in Capernaum and the crowds are rushing towards him in fact it says that the whole town was outside of Peter's house the whole town can you imagine that your house the whole of East London outside your door because Jesus is doing something inside and the disciples are getting excited because this is the ministry's happening yay we're winning and Jesus says no 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 after spending a lot of time in prayer with God he discerns that God is saying this is not why you've come you haven't come to minister healing to one town you've come to preach the gospel in many towns and so he goes and they go town to town preaching the gospel. But he's back. So at the start of this story, as we see in verse 1, it says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And as soon as people hear Jesus is back, they flood the home. Guess who's home? It's the same home it was in the second chapter when everyone came and sat outside. This is probably Peter's home. And people can't wait to see what Jesus is going to do next. This house is full. People can't even get in at the door. I, I thought of our old adage we speak about in South Africa here, that there's always room for one more in the South African taxi. This house was fuller than a South African taxi. Not even one more person could be squashed in there. And notice what Jesus is doing. He's not healing. He's preaching. He's preaching the gospel. What is he preaching? It doesn't say specifically, but in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, it does tell us what Jesus' message was. And I'll remind you of that. It says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's telling everyone, wherever he goes, repent and believe in the gospel. And he's preaching this word in this house. But he is box office. That's why everyone is coming. You just don't know what's going to happen next. And while he's preaching, the roof starts shaking. And these roofs used to be made out of uh, um, natural materials. And so it was fairly easy to open them up. And sometimes if someone had died in the house, they would uh, uh, remove them through the roof. 
But this was unusual in the middle of a sermon to have the roof shaking and the mud and dust falling and suddenly this man gets lowered by his four friends. And I feel for Jesus a little bit because I've also been distracted in a sermon before. I've had someone snoring in the front row. Um, and the, probably the funniest um, distraction I've seen was when Dane left the computer on over there. Some of you might have been there that day. And poor Bryce had Google helpfully contributing to all of his sermon points. So sometimes we have to navigate distraction when we're preaching. And in both of those situations, the sermon was still salvageable. Jesus has a massive distraction to his sermon going on. The focus has shifted off him and onto the paralyzed man. And Jesus sees their faith and then he speaks to the paralyzed man and you can almost imagine what everyone's, you know, knows he's about to say because they've seen him do this over and over again. He's about to speak to the par this paralyzed man in the middle of his sermon and we know what he's going to say and then he says, your sins are forgiven you. And that is odd. That's not what people were expecting him to say. I can almost imagine the friends who have gone through all of this effort to get this man into this room and were clearly hoping Jesus was going to heal him. This is why we've brought him here, that you will heal him and do some of the amazing stuff you did uh, the last time you were here. And Jesus doesn't give people what they're looking for. There's, I almost imagine, a a deflation in the crowd, a confusion. And, and the religious leaders who are very nervous of Jesus, this is the first time we hear about them, they've obviously paid attention to what happened the last time he was here, and they've decided they need to come and check what's going on. And they need to make sure that he's teaching the right stuff. And he says something that makes them bristle. And what I find interesting is, Jesus takes this distracting moment which could have completely taken away from what he was preaching. And he turns it into a sermon illustration. He carries on preaching. Because the next part to repent and believe for anyone who does that is your sins are forgiven you. You would have expected, after seeing their faith, that Jesus would have said, Son, you are healed. This was surely what everyone was expecting. The atmosphere was electric with expectation. And into that space, Jesus keeps preaching, Your sins are forgiven you, a continuation of the sermon, Repent and Believe. And he's turned this potentially distracting moment into a wonderful illustration that's going to have an amazing co conclusion. But a question is arising in your heart, and I'm glad you're asking it. I can perceive that question, so I'm going to answer it. How can Jesus say, your sins are forgiven you? Think about that. Jesus doesn't preach a gospel that's just random forgiveness. He's preaching, repent. You must repent, turn away from your sins, and believe in me. And then your sins will be forgiven. And this man, who, from what we can tell, hasn't done either of those things, Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven you. It's a powerful, powerful statement. In fact, it is the very statement that is going to end his ministry. When he stands before Pontius Pilate, and just before he gets sent to the cross, he is sent to the cross for claiming to be able to do things that only God can do. And the Pharisees rightfully believe or think, Jesus can't say that because only God can forgive sins. And I'm asking myself, what is going on with this paralytic that Jesus can forgive his sins. He has the authority to forgive his sins. I believe that. And I think what's helpful is the phrase before Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. This should come up on the screen and I've emphasized the key word. Let's look at the very line before 
Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you. It says this in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And there's a little play in the pronouns there that sometimes I think confuses people. If you don't know what's going on in the story, you might imagine that they are over there and the paralytic is over here and he looks at their faith and then he says to him, your sins are forgiven you. But remember, they are together. They're a group. He's let them down. He's let the, the group has let the paralytic down through the roof and they are all together. The four of them are holding him and Jesus looks at them, the five of them. There's no reason to believe that the paralytic is without faith. And what I find interesting, for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven you, I believe that the paralytic has saving faith. Faith beyond just getting healed. And as we go through the story, something that's going to hopefully become quite clear to you and how special that is. It's the first time we read of that. And so Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven you. The main point to the story is not that this paralytic is healed of his par paralysis. That's subsequent. The main point to the story is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And he forgives this man's sin because of the faith that he had. And I want you to be asking, I'm going to answer it later, but how did he get that faith? How did he get to this point? where he was so aware of his sin and he knew that Jesus was the only one that could save him. Because it's in that space that Jesus says to you, your sins are forgiven. It happened to me. It's happened to many of you. You had to first become aware of your sin. You had to realize there was nothing you could do. And then you came to Jesus and he saved you from your sins. That's the gospel. And the gospel's happening right in front of everyone's face. It's the continuation of the sermons that he's been preaching. And now we see someone getting saved. Their sins are forgiven. It's a powerful moment. And Jesus lets that moment hang in the air. Son, your sins are forgiven you. And everyone's waiting in anticipation for what's going to happen next. The Pharisees have a huge problem with Jesus saying that the man's sins are forgiven. And they're right that only God can forgive sin. Which is what makes this statement so important. Jesus is declaring his divinity. And he's not just making a claim. Anyone can make claims. A claim is when you say something and, and if it's not backed up, we can all do stuff like that. But Jesus gives evidence. He backs up his claim with evidence because he goes on to challenge the Pharisees. And the whole reason why he heals the man is because of the first part. He wants to prove that he has forgiven his sins. So he says, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or rise, get up and walk. It is easier to say your sins are forgiven you. Why? Because there's no way to uh, prove whether that statement, that statement cannot be tested. So it's easy to say. It is far harder to say to someone who can't walk, get up and walk. Because the evidence of whether that statement has come into effect is immediately on show. Jesus proves that he has forgiven the man's sins which cannot be seen by healing him of paralysis, which can be seen. And I stress again, the healing is not the point of the story. Forgiveness of sins is the point. And the only reason Jesus heals the man is so that we may know. Read that. It's a power, it should come up on the screen as well. Uh, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up. Rise up and walk. Why did he heal this man? So that we will know that he has authority to forgive sins. That's the point. And the man gets up and 
everyone is amazed and glorifies God, saying we never saw anything like this, which is strange because he's been in Capernaum for the whole of chapter 1 doing amazing things. So what was different this time? What was different was the healing is associated with the forgiveness of sins. And they've never seen this before. I can't leave the section without touching on some thoughts around healing. It was accepted in Judaism that sin and sickness were related. Everyone in that room believed that man was a paralytic because of his sins. That's what they believed. Jesus challenges that misconception in later stages. It's not true. But everyone there believed that. This paralytic is the biggest sinner in the room. That's why he is struggling with the sickness. And he would have believed it too. Even though it's not true, Jesus uses that misconception to prove his point. Or to make his point. Today there is still a misconception around faith and healing, sin and sickness. Sometimes sickness is a direct result of sin. It is true. Sometimes it is. And sometimes the, that result is obvious. If someone is living uh, a sexually immoral life and sleeping around over and over and over, the chances of them uh, picking up ill health because of their lifestyle is huge. And that's a direct consequence of the way that they're living their life. Sometimes the sin might be uh, involved in our sickness in a more subtle way that's harder to determine, but not always. It's not true that because you are sick, it's because of sin. Sometimes God brings sickness into our lives so that we will draw nearer to Him. That might be hard to hear, but I've seen that in my life. And I've seen that in the lives of people around me. And listen to what J.C. Ryle says about the paralytic. This is coming up on the screen for you. Who can doubt that at the end of his days, this man would thank God for this palsy? Without it, he might have lived and died in ignorance and never seen Christ at all. Without it, he might have kept his sheep on the green hills of Galilee all his life long and never been brought to Christ and never heard these blessed words thy sins be forgiven thee that palsy was indeed a blessing who can tell but it was the beginning of eternal life to his soul I asked you a question earlier and I hope you've been thinking about it why was this man the first one to get his sins forgiven. How did he get to this point where Jesus could look at him and see faith in his heart and say to him, your sins are forgiven you? And it's got to do with this misconception. It's actually a blessing to him. Out of everyone in the room, the person whose sin weighed heaviest on them was the paralytic. His whole life he had been told, this is because of your sins. And because he was aware of his sin, and because he saw Jesus and he realized, you are the on my only hope, he was ready to receive the gospel and be changed by it forever. I'm not surprised that the paralytic was the first to see his need for Jesus, not just for physical healing, but for the deep sickness of the soul that ails all of us. Because he saw this in himself, and he saw that Jesus was the answer, and his sins were forgiven. That's powerful. The person whose sin weighed heaviest on them was the most ready to receive the gospel. I want to move on in the second story and my second point is Jesus goes after the worst of sinners. These two stories at first seem unrelated. Even when Joey and I did a little bit of a recap on the text, uh, uh, there was something at first that was, okay, so we go from the paralytic and Jesus forgiving his sins to Jesus going to the beach. 
Um, and now he's going to call uh, another disciple. And at first these things seem unrelated, but the beauty of, and Mark actually puts these stories back to back on purpose. And you're going to see that and how the theme comes through clearly here. And Jesus has this pattern. I love this pattern of Jesus. He's in the town. Amazing stuff happens. He leaves the town. He goes somewhere else. And so he's just had this great victory. Everyone's glorifying God. Everyone, even the Pharisees who were there to test him, it said everyone in that room was glorifying God for what had happened. We've got our first of many who are saved. Their sins are forgiven. And now... Jesus goes after this victory and he moves towards the sea. And he continues to teach those that are coming to him. And along the way, he sees Levi. And you need to know this. Levi, you've already met him if you've been reading your Bible. He wrote the book before Mark. Levi's other name, or a name you could call him, is Matthew. He's a writer of a gospel. And Jesus sees Levi who later writes the first gospel, and calls him to be his disciple. Now Levi was a tax collector. Levi is sitting in the tax booth when Jesus calls him. And I always wondered why, I mean, I'm sure you've heard before from the pulpit that tax collectors were bad people and everyone hated them. And I've always wondered why we had to stress that, because I still hate giving taxes to people. Like, you you don't have to convince me of that. Uh, I hate tax collectors, even today. I hate giving away my tax. But um, the reason to emphasize this point in this story is there are a number of reasons why choosing Levi is significant for the gospel. It's a significant moment for the gospel. Jews were under Roman oppression. I hate paying taxes. I've already admitted that. I'm sure most of you can relate. But at least my taxes are meant to go towards the benefit of my country. I think part of the reason why we hate paying taxes is we don't always see that happening, but we at least understand the concept. I give the, we all give the government some money, and the government has money to improve our life. Great. It's wonderful when it works out that way. But for the Jews, because they are oppressed by Rome, the taxes collected from their pockets are not going to the benefit of Israel. It's going to the benefit of Rome, to the benefit of the oppressors. And what's worse is the tax collectors themselves don't just collect for Rome, they also openly over-collected more money to line their pockets and you couldn't stop them and you all knew it was happening. And they knew it too and they were shameless. They were thieves, helping the oppressors and lining their pockets. And most of them were foreigners because if you were a Jew and you were a tax collector, you were excommunicated from the temple and your family shunned you. Because you are serving the oppressor and stealing from us and everyone hates you. Matthew, the tax collector, the disciple of Jesus, the writer of the first gospel, is also a Jew. Think about that. And I can imagine him sitting there and he was rich. Tax collectors were rich. And he's given up on his reputation. You all hate me. Okay. I'm sitting here in the open robbing all of you. I accept that. I've made my choices. I'm shunned by my family and the religion around me. Fine. And into that space, Jesus comes and says, Hey, you, follow me. Can you imagine what it was like being on Jesus' leadership team at that point? Jesus, we were just starting to build some momentum again. Jesus, I'm not so sure this is going to be well received by the community. Jesus, we have some conflicting views around your strategy at this moment. Around this chosen direction. But Jesus wasn't interested in serving perception on his team or perception in community. Jesus saw someone and he called him. He has just proven he has the authority to forgive sins and now he calls the worst of sinners onto his leadership team. What is the connection? What is his message? 
The gospel is for everyone. No one is beyond my reach. Matthew gets up and follows him. He doesn't wait. He doesn't consider the consequences. He doesn't make a pros and cons list. He doesn't think about his reputation or his lack of worthiness. Jesus calls him and Matthew comes, leaving a life of great wealth. And we've got these two, the paralytic and Matthew. Both men living lives under the heavy burden of sin. For the paralytic, he was a terrible sinner because of his illness. For Matthew, he was a terrible sinner because of his life choices. Yet out of the throngs of people around Jesus, the, peop the two people in our stories that respond to the gospel and the call of Christ are Matthew, the tax collector, and this paralytic man. We don't know his name. It seems to me that grasping our sinfulness is a crucial element to responding to the gospel. Something which is only emphasized in this next story. Remember, Matthew's sitting there. He's not pretending to be a good person. He's not pretending to be okay. Out of everyone around him, he has accepted that he is uh, hated and Perhaps he even believes that it's rightfully so. It's just the choices that he's made. But both men have a clear view of their sin. And both men respond to the gospel and the call of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. I want to move on into my third point. My final point. Matthew celebrates his newfound friendship with Jesus by throwing a party and inviting all of his friends and colleagues to meet Jesus. Day one. His, his response to uh, making friends with Jesus is to go, right, I'm going to celebrate this. This might be the last time I have enough money to celebrate in a big way. And I'm going to invite everyone. And he invites everyone. All of his colleagues who are sinners and tax collectors. And they all come to his house to meet Jesus. And the religious people are also there. And the tradition was, religious people, we are righteous. We all sit together. People that disobey the traditions, they are unrighteous and sinners. They sit over there. You don't mix with them. It's a caste system. You must, they must feel that they are lower than us. Because they are not allowed to sit with us. Because we live in the correct way. And Jesus comes, who is a teacher... And the Pharisees would have expected and even wanted him, even though they didn't like his message, they would have expected him and for the way he spoke with authority, come and sit with them, that was, would have been right. That would have been the custom. Sit with us. We are the teachers. But Jesus goes and he sits with the tax collectors and the sinners, and this is, confuses the Pharisees. And they... Um, why would a respected teacher of the law associate with the lawless. Now these were not sinners in the strictest sense of the word. They were called sinners because they wouldn't keep up the traditions of the Pharisees. If, you, if the Pharisees had a million things they wanted you to do, you were right if you did the million things. And if you didn't do those things, if you said this is dumb, I'm not going to do it, you were a sinner. So the best example I could think of that I lived amongst was in uh, Oman with the Muslims. It was just like this. The Muslims had to pray five times a day. And if someone in their town didn't do that, it was well known. And they were regarded as, you know, sinners. It doesn't mean because you're not praying that you're running off and committing all sorts of sins. These people are living normal lives, not doing anything wrong. But we're not keeping up with your traditions and going to go to the temple and pray five times a day. We don't want to do that. Now you're regarded as a sinner. And that's the same as this group of here. Sure, um, we're all sinners, so they are filled with all sorts of sin, but they are viewed as sinners because they won't hold the traditions of the Pharisees and the re religious leaders. When they challenge Jesus on why he's sitting with people who give little credence to spiritual traditions, Jesus states again his purpose for coming. He came not for the righteous, but for sinners. The people who would respond to his message 
are sitting around his table. Jesus doesn't go and sit at the table. Those guys are not going to respond. This message isn't for you guys. None of you are going to respond to the gospel. Think about what's happened with the gospel so far. The biggest sinner in the room got saved. No one else. They all watched the miracle happen. The biggest sinner in the community responds to Jesus' call. Other people have come to listen to some good teaching, but they're not all in. They're not willing to leave their whole lives behind to follow him. It was the biggest sinner. And now Jesus is sitting at the table with the people who will respond to him. The sinners, the tax collectors, the sick. Those are the ones he's come for. Not the righteous, the puffed up, the proud. You think they've got it all together, fine. You think you've got it all together? That's not why I've come. Those who thought they were okay and trusting in their own goodness missed Jesus and why he came. At a small group this week, someone mentioned that when we admit our sinfulness, Jesus can come close. I'm talking about Christians. When we as Christians admit our sinfulness, Jesus can come close. When we are feeling like we are living right and well, and we're proud about that, we push Jesus away. Spiritual pride scares me because I see it so easily in others, but I don't see it in myself. Jesus moves far away when I carry spiritual pride in my heart. Honest brokenness about who I really am brings Jesus near. Is he sitting at your table? today I must wrap up how are we responding to this message this morning the first question that I'm asking is have you responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ can you see his purpose for coming that he came to save sinners and that as a sinner he is your only hope if you can see your sin this morning and your need for him, then the good news is that Jesus came for you. And no one is beyond his reach. He has the authority to forgive all sins. He dealt with sin forever on the cross. And anyone who calls on his name will be saved. Repent and believe. Have you done that? Just because you're at church this morning doesn't mean you've done that. I really want to challenge you to think about that. If you're starting to see this message clearly, it could be that Jesus is revealing himself to you this morning, but you need to respond. The next question is for those who have responded, and many of you have. Many of you are right before God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Yes, spiritual pride, we've got to look for that, and I want to challenge you on that, challenge myself to look for it. You've I think the best way to find that is to have good relationships with people around you that you trust and you say, speak into my life. When you, when you see that in me, challenge me because it's such a hard thing to see on your own. But there's something for the Christian in these stories. As I've preached the gospel this morning, and you might be sitting there going, but Mark, I've responded to the gospel. I'm not sure what I'm here for then. Well, this is what you're here for. Do you see the friends bringing their colleague to Jesus. When we do that, the gospel proves powerful and people are saved. The paralytic's friends went through great effort to bring their friend to Jesus. It was a life-changing moment. Matthew invites all of his friends and colleagues to a party so that they can meet Jesus. Both stories required effort. It didn't just happen. We don't just sit and people get saved and they just come to church. We are going to need to put in effort to help people get to Jesus. And in both of these stories, massive effort is put in by the paralytic's friends and by Matthew. How much effort are you putting in to reach friends and colleagues for Christ? Some of us might be thinking, I don't know how to do that. Matthew wasn't trained in evangelism, but he sets a wonderful example for us. On day one, 
Jesus hasn't told him how to do anything yet. He invites unsaved friends and family to his home and he eats and he drinks with them and he makes sure Jesus is there too. That's a wonderful example. I want to challenge you. If you invite unsaved friends and family to your home for a good time over a meal and drinks and your reason is so that they can meet Jesus, Jesus will show up. He will show up. He will help you steer the conversation. He'll give you the words. And he can reach anyone. No one is too far gone for him. I challenge you, set a date, throw a party, invite friends who don't know Jesus, and ask him to show up. As I close with this last picture. This final picture of Jesus sitting at Matthew's table with sinners all around him is a picture of the end. The final supper. The marriage supper of the Lamb and His bride. It's a reminder of the victory. Not only did Jesus come to forgive sins and to save sinners, we have a picture of this amazing victory at the end with sinners sitting all around Jesus enjoying the supper with Him. And the gospel will prove powerful. You don't need to be afraid of that. We see a table where sinners are enjoying the presence of Jesus. It's a great picture of the final victory. There will come a day in heaven where the biggest party you and I have ever seen will be thrown. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb and the Bride. Jesus and every sinner saved by grace through faith. Will you be there? And who will you have brought with you? I want you to close your eyes. We're going to stand to our feet. I want you all to stand to your feet as you close your eyes. I'm going to lead you in this response time and we're going to head into a time of worship. I want to encourage you, church. Standing here are many people who have already responded to the gospel. Because the gospel has proved powerful in our lives. Jesus has forgiven our sins. He's called us to follow him. And maybe standing here today is someone who's seeing that clearly for the first time. And we celebrate every time someone comes to Jesus. As you stand now, celebrate in your heart that you know him. Celebrate in your heart that he's come for you. That he's revealed your sin to you and that you have come to place your faith, your saving faith in him. And that one day you're going to be sitting around that table with him in his victory, enjoying him for all eternity. And as you pray in your heart and celebrate that, I also want you to think about and ask him to show you who are the people that you can invite to come with you. Celebrate that the gospel is powerful. Celebrate that it will advance, it will save. Celebrate that when you invite people into your homes and you do it because you want them to know Jesus, you can have faith and believe that Jesus will show up. Celebrate it. And make yourself available. Say in your heart to God right now, God, I don't want my home to be just a space for myself and my comfort. I want my home to be a place where people can come and hear what you have done. I want my home to be a home like Peter's where people just come and they meet you. Lord, all over this room, there are followers of Christ, people who love you. We have been redeemed because of your grace, 
because what you have done on the cross. And you have given us opportunities, resources, things that we can use for you. And we stand, Lord, in celebration now. We celebrate your great victory on the cross. We celebrate that you overcame sin and death. And we celebrate that even now, as we continue to live our lives for you, you are able to reveal yourselves to people around us and to save them. Will you show up in our houses? Will you be there as we share what you have done for us? And would you reveal yourself to many more people in this city that they may come to follow you? Fill this city with the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, man. 
wonderful that the Lord's not finished with us <laughs> and then we still get challenged and uh, so I really uh, I'm going to close with prayer and I trust you all have a good week but uh, if you're not sure of your faith then perhaps uh, you should just stay behind if you like the paralytic and you're not sure of your faith, then stay behind and Mark and I will pray with you. Or perhaps you like Matthew and you're just overwhelmed with sin in your life and then you're welcome to stay behind as well and we'll pray for you. Remember Jesus says, come, <laughs> come. Those who are weary and heavy laden so father thank you for the challenge this morning again thank you that you haven't finished uh, working in our lives we'll never get to a point where we can say oh we've arrived now and everything's hunky-dory it's never like that and it's good lord it's good because it draws us closer to you it makes us more depending, dependable on you. And from that we get this wonderful grace and this mercy and this love that comes from you. So as we go into this week, Lord, just give us great courage. Give us great confidence. Give us uh, the desire to throw a party, Lord. So that 